Hi everyone and welcome to this month's iteration of ShortCloud Cyber Threat Briefing. Uh, we've got three key topics today. We're looking at the CISA report for uh, exploited vulnerabilities in 2021. Uh, we're also going to be looking at attacks on the education sector uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, the potential for senior leadership still relying on basic security controls and basic passwords and, and how they may be affected. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by Hugh Rayner. Hugh, let me have your thoughts on the first topic. What do you think about CISA's report and, and what's your view on uh, the most exploited vulnerabilities for 2021? We see uh, Log4j at the top of that list, which I don't think is a surprise to anyone, right? Um, it was a huge thing impacting swathes of the, the internet. And it was, you know, every cybersecurity team in the land was working to remediate on that. So no surprise to see that at the top. I think as a, as a whole, we see quite a lot of um, remote access solutions, so VPNs and things like that appearing in that list as well. Um, I think that, that follows quite naturally, makes sense to me, given the, the shift to home working over the last couple of years. Remote access solutions, always going to be a great way in for an attacker, allow them to logically position their device within that network. If a VPN solution has a, has a vulnerability into it, an attacker can get on they're then positioned within that network on their own device. So that makes perfect sense as well. Seeing things like um, VMware as well, virtualization, obviously that's becoming a lot more prevalent in terms of you know, use across the, the landscape. So again, makes sense to see issues with that being capitalized on as well. I think what was really interesting to me, just looking at the report, and, and we have posted a link to that for you all to have a look at as well, um, I think was was probably two key things for me. So the first one was that Microsoft Exchange Server appeared in there several times for a number of vulnerabilities from last year, which uh, I guess, you know, with majority of the clients we work with now having considered sort of migration to Microsoft 365, I'm assuming you, they won't be affected by those CVEs. But what, what about for organizations that are still hosting on-premise Exchange Servers? You know, it, it's obviously important for them to keep up with patching, but how can they be sort of keeping abreast of CVEs in, in those types of environments? Yeah, so um, organizations like Microsoft are you know, really good for, for getting patches up quickly, documenting you know, what's been fixed and trying to let you know that that needs to be installed. But yeah, it's a huge area of risk really, isn't it? When, when you're doing this on-prem, mail servers are you know, one of the most common, you know, through phishing attacks, most common methods of entry for attackers into an environment. By, by their own very nature, you know, you have to be able to accept mail coming in externally from the web. So those services do need to be exposed externally. And when you have, you know, remote code execution vulnerabilities in these, I remember as well, some of them were you know, with, with associated privilege escalation. So that is, uh, you know, a golden ticket to an attacker. So again, keeping on top of that patching, whether that's through, uh, you know, special awareness sessions for maintenance teams so that they're aware of the importance of this or you know just refining your policy documentation so that it's clear to everyone what what's expected really key and important things to be doing yeah absolutely i think the other thing i noticed towards the bottom of those top 15 q which i guess surprised me a little bit was that some of those cbes are, are kind of more than a couple of years old you know for those still to be exploited during 2021 particularly if they were, uh, you know, discovered sort of 2018, 2019, you know, that, that's quite a long period for people still to be remediating sort of weaknesses within their infrastructure. What does that tell you? What, what are your thoughts on that? 
unfortunately, you know, that's not really too surprising for me. You know, we're, we're still seeing vulnerabilities quite regularly among especially large organizations with legacy technical debt, basically, where, where these things just, they don't get picked up. If you're not doing vulnerability scans, the network devices, you're, the one you're referring to is uh, a vulnerability in, in a Fortinet device. Organizations often will have these things running in you know, cupboards, data centers. They're not even necessarily aware of them. They're not being used anymore, but they are still adding to that attack surface. Um, and I think that's a common reason why we're still seeing these things we go in for an assessment, do a you know a network discovery exercise, and you know when we sit down with the client. Quite commonly, we're saying, okay, we've got these extra you know 15, 16 devices here that you've not given us on your your asset list. What are these? And uh, you know, inevitably, it's a shrug of the shoulders that you're met with. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And and as you look further down, some of the areas that were not part of the top 15, but were sort of additionally routinely exploited during 2021, again. There's a, a real balance there in kind of the, the age of the CVE, but also in in the focus again, you know, it broadens a little bit from remote code execution into um, some other attack techniques as well, which I guess is unsurprising to most degrees. But there were some there again that I felt have been sort of part of high profile attacks and you know potentially were, would have been mitigated. So for it to make a report of this nature, I, I'd expect those probably to to have been thought about by organisations, but you know, I guess the, the key message here as the report moves on to talk a bit about mitigations is on having a robust vulnerability and configuration management program to ensure that those are kept secure. But what, what are some of the other things that organizations should be doing to obviously identify whether they're exposed to these things and, and you know, ultimately whether they need to do anything? Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it is, as we mentioned before, asset management is really important as well. Don't just go back and you know look for vulnerabilities on the machines that that you know are there and are well documented. Because if if you know if they're in your your asset management systems and, and your your process flows, then you've probably got that uh, quite well um, captured. Uh, it's what you can't see. So asset discovery, making sure that that things aren't on your network that you're not aware of. And then once you've got that, I think really important to consider what an attacker is going to be looking for as well. So, uh, you know, activities like threat modeling, where you can really uh, look at, okay, an attacker is going to see this, they're going to try and attack this. From there, they're going to land here in the network. And, okay, here's where our crown jewels are. So they're going to try and you know, move laterally across the network. And building up on that and deploying controls defensively along that attack path so that you've got that layered defense in depth model is really the, the best thing you can do to, to make sure you're secure there. Yeah, and I think traditionally we'd see most of those things, you know, people are not going to be looking at that and, and being surprised. I think vulnerability management it is naturally quite a difficult thing to achieve without just relying on technology to go and tell you what the vulnerabilities are. Sometimes it's actually thinking about um, the, the context behind those and, and how attackers could potentially exploit those. So, you know, it, it moves on, I guess the report talks a bit more then about identity and access management and sort of moves into a topic that we've been talking about more recently around security architecture. And as you just said, this kind of layered defense model. So I think the the, the kind of takeaway from this really is, is about knowing what your kind of attack surface looks like, understanding what's critical um, in that process and, and how you're protecting it, but also doing your, your basic cyber hygiene and making sure that you are regularly reviewing vulnerabilities, making sure that you're patching um, and, and keeping a good control really over you know, your technical estate. 
so I, I guess moving on from that, um, and again, a, a related subject, really, um, you know, the next topic we had to talk about was around health and education sectors, here and, and sort of their susceptibility to cyber attacks. Um, and, you know, the ICO has released some, uh, some sort of statements recently in various reports about kind of susceptibility of, of particularly education, which was um, the, the area that, that we're going to look at. I mean, how does that differ to what we may be um, sort of talking about in, in general kind of private public sector organisations? Yeah, so I think there are, you know, there are some differences, right? So universities are typically huge organisations. A lot of users tend to do more things in-house, have things hosted centrally. Obviously, they're all on, on, the, on the Janet network, so that's, you know, managed for them. But, you know, like mail servers, like we mentioned before, most universities seem to be, you know, doing that in-house. And uh, I think the, one of the reports that came out recently Exchange server vulnerabilities, you know, was the way in there. And obviously, we've got a lot of sensitive information going through university mail servers, um, research projects. I mean, that's a huge target for attackers. I think not long ago, there was an Iranian group that were targeting um, you know, research projects and things like that. That's incredibly valuable intellectual property, especially in you know medical fields and things like that. Obviously, with recent vaccine developments, you know, there's there's huge, huge value in the the assets that universities hold. And that's aside from, you know, the, the incredibly powerful computers they've got as well. So we're also seeing universities being used for things like Bitcoin mining. The supercomputers available there far surpass the, the, you know, the computing power that you traditionally expect, you know, a private sector organization to hold. Yeah, really interesting. I, you know, the report we're looking at is specifically around cyber impacts and kind of their their impact on higher education. So, from my perspective, I think you know ransomware seems quite prevalent across that as well. But I, I know there was some interesting statistics here around sort of some of the attack vectors. Is it worth expanding on a few of those, um, particularly some that that I found um, surprising? I don't know about you, but for me, when I read that uh, UCL, uh, University College London, reported that they'd blocked 60 million um, malicious emails, you know, phishing attempts coming in in the first three months of this year alone. You know, that's, that's an astronomical number of malicious emails coming through. And obviously, those are only the ones that are caught, right? So the, the real number is probably slightly higher than that. I'm sure they're with with sixty million uh, items of training data, I'm sure their their systems are getting pretty good at detecting it now. But to me, that was you know really frightening. Yeah, I think there were some also um, sort of relatively surprising ones in there, particularly where social engineering was quite a low value in terms of the impact. Um, you know, I'm I'm guessing from that perspective, the attacker probably couldn't proceed as far as they um, you know maybe intended to. But equally, it was quite high in terms of you know the impact of the compromise probably far exceeded what, what I expected to see. I think, you know, maybe some of the points you've built on already were, were maybe the reason for that. Yeah, could well be. So what, what were some of the other things that you took away from that, particularly focused at higher education? I mean, why, other than sort of what they're working on, I mean, is there a level of susceptibility within higher education that we think is different to your, your average business? I mean, what, what would make them more attractive to an attacker? Is it their uh, kind of the, the value of the information, or is it more so on the kind of dependencies that they have on on other providers? What what do you think makes them a key target? Um, I think you know that there's a, there's a range of things. Education providers often you know become targets for you know 
what I call, you know, low level cyber attacks, things like denial of service attacks, you know, teenagers think it's funny to launch a denial of service attack, you know, when maybe an exam deadline is coming up in an organization, things like that. Universities also, you know, there's a lot of key dates in a university calendar around exam times, especially uh, application, you know, uh, when, when places are being allocated, launching a ransomware attack against, uh, you know, a, an educational institution, right as the uh, university positions are being handed out, it, you know, that's going to have catastrophic impact. And the more, the more pressure that um, an attacker can, can have, the, the more critical of a time that they can launch that attack on an organization, the more likely they are to be able to get that ransom out of, out of them. Yeah, I think um, an interesting point that was just raised in the chat is around, you know, most of their attackers are, are potentially within the network. And, you know, I think when you look at the general awareness of users across an organization, they're, they're kind of bound by organizational policies and contracts and things about protecting, you know, the infrastructure, at least the things that they're in control of as a user. But, you know, potentially the, the level of awareness, you know, whilst you may think from an age perspective, maybe more mature at the, at the lower level, you know, i.e. people have grown up with technology a bit more. So I think it's fair to say that the majority of attacks on, on those types of organizations are probably going to already be within, within their network, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. The, the, you know, there's a huge chance of that. I mean, you look at insider threat as a, as a huge area of risk. And I think unlike, you know, with, with your employer, I don't think many students necessarily sort of feel that 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 passion that drive to support the organization that they're in right they're just there to to pick up the the certificate at the end of it and and, and better their their future prospects and and when you have you know so many students on a network large campus networks you know i've, I've seen in, in organizations you know it's it's quite easy to to walk into a campus find your way into a building where you will find ethernet ports just you know out and available there's not that level of of security. No, no one wears a lanyard um, when they're walking around university. There's no uniform, right? So it, it's quite easy for someone opportunistic to just walk in and find themselves on the on the networks. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, really. I mean, the very nature of them that they're, they're very publicly accessible, aren't they? And you know that kind of um, social engineering, or or you know the potential for walking into buildings without really being questioned or challenged. Um, you know and gaining access to, to physical and, and wireless networks is is obviously a lot more available than it probably would be within, you know, small to medium and, and up to enterprise size businesses. But I think what's interesting, that comes a lot back to awareness. And, and I think, you know, the final topic that we've got to talk about is, is around kind of several points made around general awareness for cybersecurity, particularly within leadership roles. Um, so I know there was a couple of articles that that, that we were looking at here around kind of the exposure of execs and, and particularly large-scale organizations. Um, do, do you want to expand maybe a little bit on, on what we found and, and, and ultimately, I guess, what that means for um, potentially some of the people listening? Yeah, so we've seen some reports recently discussing how, how basically password and, and basic cyber hygiene is, is really quite poor among execs and CEOs, which is obviously a, you know, a, a pretty big problem because the higher up in the organization you are, the more sensitive that, that material you've got. Often as well, we see that uh, while principle of least privilege is applied you know, pretty well throughout organizations, typically in, in smaller organizations, sometimes the execs like to be able to you know, have, have that full access so that's that's not necessarily applied, and there are also busy people that have got a lot to do, right? So traditionally, you know, 
security isn't necessarily the forefront of the mind. So picking passwords, like a keyboard walk, you know, from, from one to six is common and will not take very long at all for uh, an attacker to um, brute force that. I think, you know, looking at awareness, I think one of the things that, that I see quite frequently is that, you know, we, we try and take a kind of one size fits all approach to delivering awareness across the organization. And, you know, maybe we're not cognizant of those that maybe have privileged access or are, you know, potentially more of a focus for external attackers. So when, when looking at a, a kind of awareness program, you know, what are some of the things that organizations should be considering when, you know, we've got these types of reports for data leakage um, and, and potential for compromise, you know, of, of information on the dark web. Yeah, so if you want your your awareness program to be successful, uh, it needs to engage the audience, right? And to engage the audience, it needs to be tailored to what's relevant to them. A receptionist doesn't necessarily have the same sort of risk profile as an executive. The information that an attacker is going to be looking to get out of each of them is, is probably different. A receptionist might, you know, they might be just looking to access the network through a, through a phishing email. Whereas, you know, if you're targeting and singling out an executive in a you know a whaling attack, you're probably you've probably got in mind what it is that you're looking to get out of that. So the awareness training should be tailored specifically to that. And equally, if, if you having the execs uh, as a high risk group, right, we wouldn't just say, okay, let's have a training for the high risk group and the low risk group, because in a system administrator with permissions across the network, they're definitely a high risk group. But if you start giving the same awareness training to your executives as you do for a sysadmin, that's just not going to fly because, you know, you're going to be teaching them to suck eggs in, in some regards. And you know other elements aren't going to be covered for the for the execs that would be really relevant to the sysadmins. You've got you know a, a different um, attack path for the attackers when they when they attempt to att- attempt that compromise. Yeah, I think that's a really good view. Um, I think one of the things again that I found interesting about some of the statistics in here, um, you know, three quarters of the credentials were lost through breaches, which you know I guess is is kind of expected. You know, that's ultimately how they appear on the dark web, but the other 25% were through targeted attacks, um, which is still quite a significant proportion, isn't it? And again, you know, when you look at the focus of that article, you know, they're looking very much at the FTSE 100 um, as listed on the London Stock Exchange. So, you know, there is potentially, you know, the misconception that larger organisations have a more mature security model than smaller organisations, for example. I wonder what your view is here, having, you know, you, you test these types of organizations a lot. And, you know, we're not here to question the security of different organizations. But, I mean, the general feeling here is that even though the higher profile ones may sort of be perceived to have better security models, actually probably smaller organizations have got a bit more agility to be able to secure and, you know, keep control of their attack surface. What, what are your thoughts? That there is a correlation between organization size and cybersecurity spend. And there's also a correlation between cybersecurity spend and, you know, frequency of, of incidents. But that's a correlation, right? It's not, a, you know, it's, it's not um, locked together. There's, there's deviations from that. Um, and like you said, a, a smaller organization might well be able to spot anomalous behavior on their systems much more easily than a, you know, a large multinational. Like you said, about seventy-five percent of that of those credential compromises coming from you know, data breaches and dumps. I would definitely advocate for organisations to consider canary accounts. If you if you put account credentials in in files or in your databases that are specifically set up 
only ever to, well, never to be used. Um, and then you enable every single form of monitoring on that. Um, as soon as you then see any account activity, any attempted logins or anything like that against that, that credential pair, you know, that, that just tells you then that, okay, wherever this canary token was stored, that has been compromised. And I think that's a really nice uh, in relatively easy way of getting visibility into, you know, whether accounts have been put into a dump, because if it's an account that's already in use, you know, commonly, uh, you might not necessarily spot that that's been logged into once. Not many systems are designed to flag if one account is logged into one time. That's really where the, the beauty of these canaries shines through. Yes, good point. I, I think also thinking about what we were talking about last time in the DCMS um, cybersecurity breaches survey, there was a point that we raised there around the involvement of executives, um, particularly within cybersecurity and decision-making that report seemed to indicate that there was a disconnect between sort of security operations and senior leadership. Do, do you think this is another example that enhances that and you know really sort of gives organizations a, a thought about trying to join those up so that gap becomes a lot smaller? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, the, the more we see things like this, I, I can't help but feel it it's got to have an impact, right? People are, are gonna take notice of this. And, when we look at the percentages of organizations, I think it was you know, 81% of FTSE 100 organizations had credentials posted online. Something has to be done. Yeah, and, and equally, the other side of that statistic was quite interesting as well, wasn't it? Because you know, 42% of that 81% actually have more than 500 logins exposed. You know, so the problem is not potentially limited to you know, one credential per organization. You know, thinking of batches of 500, you know, even if the accuracy of that data was sort of in the low sort of 5 to 10% range, you know, that's still quite a lot of um, access that you know, uh, an attacker could use in cycling through in order to gain access to an environment, isn't it? It is huge. And um, it really made me think because if, as I've said, 81% of organizations have some number of credentials publicly available in the FTSE 100, and 42% have more than 500 credential pairs exposed. That is a huge disparity then, because you know we've got some 20% odd of organizations that don't have credentials in public data dumps from this sample. And that in comparison to you know almost half that had more than 500 in these dumps. That is a huge disconnect and a huge you know, level of disparity. So what is it that these 20% of organizations in the FTSE 100 are doing that the other 80-odd percent aren't, given you know, people are probably going to be following the same sort of governance and compliance you know, requirements, especially given the industries that have been surveyed? Yeah, really interesting points. And I think you know, if you look at these three topics um, in isolation, there's some there's some kind of interesting sort of features about each of them. But if you look at them again together, um, you know, looking at uh, the top exploited vulnerabilities, looking at the specific targets in education, and then looking at potentially the weaknesses in, in awareness, I, I think all of those three things together, given the last um, kind of few years, uh, you know, there's no surprise that a lot of those will be prevalent. And I think the takeaway from a lot of those is to do the basics right and to make sure that you understand kind of what that basic level of assurance needs to be. Um, but then also think about who you're targeting with things like awareness and um, you know, how you're maintaining control over the, the, the areas of your environment that need it. Uh, are there any other areas you'd, you'd add to that too? I think really just getting the basics down, you know, what would you really be considering 
as foundational topics are 10 steps to cybersecurity and cyber essentials. Yes, it is a level of work to, to get those done. But, you know, the majority of things we've talked about today, that would cover off and, and would you know provide a defense against. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for that, Hugh. Okay, that's about all we've got time for today. Thank you all for attending. As usual, if you want uh, any other information, um, please feel free to reach out to Hugh or myself via LinkedIn or through our channels. Otherwise, have a great afternoon. Thanks for your time and I hope we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.